Thank you, Sharon and David. The Lord is great and greatly to be praised. It is remarkable that um, the, the breath in our lungs is the Lord's, and so we should give him praise. Um, for the benefit of our visitors this morning, Mark and Maria and uh, others, we are studying in the book of Philippians, and uh, we are at chapter 2. I'd like to give some background in the... Um, in the book, and that's going to include Acts 16. So if you're opening your Bibles, open to Acts 16. Paul wrote this letter about 11 years after his visit to the, um, the church in Philippi in 51 AD. There's um, a commentator who said that the Philippian letter is probably the most intimate of Paul's correspondence to any group of believers. He, he really has a, a compassion, a care for these believers. To whom did Paul write? He calls them my beloved and long for brethren, my joy and crown. We look back at Acts 16 and uh, we see um, in the assembly perhaps was Lydia and her Extended family, it was back in uh, verses 14 and 15 that um, she was one who went to the, um, the place of prayer and Paul spoke to her and the Lord opened her heart and uh, she heeded the things that were spoken by Paul. And so uh, as Paul imagines, um, as he uh, looks with his, um, uh, with his eye back at, at Philippi, he's probably viewing uh, Lydia and her adult children. Also in the assembly, perhaps, was the young slave girl who was delivered from demon possession, and that was in Acts 16, 16 through 18. And um, I would expect, uh, I'd really be glad, be glad to see the uh, Philippian jailer with his, um, with his grown children seated uh, there in the meeting. Paul had ministered to each of these and to others, so he would have had a strong attachment to the saints at Philippi. But persecution prevailed. Also present in Philippi were several sources of persecution of the believers. And now if you'll flip to, um, uh, sorry, sorry, stay here in Acts 16. In Philippi were the masters of this demon-possessed girl, they were willing to use the spiritual bondage of a human being for their business gain. I, I think this falls under the category of what we call today human trafficking. Also in Philippi were the magistrates who ordered the unjust beating and imprisonment of uh, the apostles Paul and Silas. What was the offense that the, uh, the apostles were accused of? They were teaching customs not lawful for Romans to receive or to observe. Or in the words of this, um, this girl, uh, the demon-possessed girl, they were preaching the way of salvation. And that was, um, that was what the apostles were doing in Philippi. And then finally, there was the angry mob in verse 22. The multitude rose up together against them. And so uh, these are all forces at work in Philippi. 
and the, um, uh, the situation there was tense. So now let's look at Philippians chapter 1 and try to get a sense of the, the level of persecution, the atmosphere uh, that was in Philippi. Uh, David preached this for us last week and um, I, I recommend going back and hearing his, um, his message. But uh, Philippians 1.27, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. So we get a, a taste of, of this oppression. Um, in verse 28, it was uh, their, their adversaries, in verse 29, it was um, suffering for the cause of Christ. Verse 30, it was having that same conflict. So you, you get a, a feeling for what was going on in Philippi. The threat of persecution was wearing down the saints. It was tempting them to retreat and to disunity. The danger might be expressed by Ben Franklin at the signing of the Declaration of Independence. He said... If we don't hang together, we'll surely hang separately. The, um, the Philippians must unify and not despair. The apostle exhorted them in the passage we just read, stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Stand fast, brethren, be of one mind, striving together. Okay, now we're ready for our passage this morning. Uh, Philippians 2, 1 through the first half of 5. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you. We're going to look at our passage this morning under three headings. First, God's resources for unity in his church. Second, the Apostles' instruction for unity in God's church. And third, the Apostles' call to humility and to others' centeredness. Lord willing, we'll close with the simple exhortation, let this mind be in you. The Lord made full and rich provision for his church. And we, we see that in verse 1. The Philippians needed only to draw on the rich resources of God's uh, heavenly bank. So when Paul says, um, therefore, 
He's, he's speaking of, in light of the persecution that we've seen, if there is any consolation in Christ, we use the word if sometimes in the, word, in the way uh, since. And so if I go through and I substitute the word since here, I think it'll give a better, um, better meaning to what Paul is conveying. Therefore, since there is any consolation in Christ, since any comfort of love, since any fellowship of the Spirit, since any affection and mercy, he's, um, he's saying, Philippians, you have this resource available to you. And uh, it's because of that that we, um, that we can withstand adversity. It's not meant by Paul to convey any conditions or any sense of doubt. So the first one that Paul offers, the first of these uh, resources is the consolation of Christ. What is the consolation of Christ? The New American Standard translates that word consolation, encouragement. What is the encouragement in Christ? Well, to Lydia and her family, the Lord opened her heart to receive, to heed the things spoken by the Apostle Paul. To the jailer and his family, they, that is Paul and Silas, spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. What did Paul speak? Probably the thing of primary importance that he spoke to the church in Corinth. I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again according to the scriptures. The church observes today Palm Sunday as the day of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We look back in Matthew 21, verses 8 and 9, a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road, others cut down branches from trees and spread them on the road, then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to God, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So they were, uh, they were cheering the Lord on. They were praising him. They were glorying in his name. They were doing what um, David and uh, Sharon sang about, uh, giving uh, glory to God with the breath that was in them. But um, why? Why did Jesus go to Jerusalem? Here he is uh, entering Jerusalem with, um, uh, with the adoration and the praise of, uh, of his creatures. Why? Jesus had told his disciples before that in chapter 20, verses 17 and 19 of Matthew. Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. That's, uh, that's what Palm Sunday is about. It's the Lord Jesus going to Jerusalem, not for honor, not to receive the honor that he was due, but to ins instead receive a martyr's crown to, to be a victim. For what? 
For what? And the Lord tells the disciples in, uh, in that same Matthew 20, in verse 28, he said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to give his life a ransom for many. Paul, in his letter to the, to the Romans, gives, this threefold, gives a threefold purpose of this, this ransom that the Lord Jesus paid. Paul wrote the Romans, he said, When we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Why did Christ go to Jerusalem to be crucified? Why? Because you and I were ungodly. We were sinners. We were without strength. We were enemies to God. And Jesus died on the cross to pay that penalty for our sins that, we, that uh, he might reconcile us to the Father. For those who grieve over the rottenness of the rebellion of their hearts, they sense the, um, the gravity of the guilt of their sin. These words are a tremendous consolation. They, uh, they proclaim salvation to all who will receive the Lord. So yes, there is cons- uh, consolation of Christ in Christ. A second consolation is that we enter into the good of Christ's death by faith. By faith. Paul wrote the Romans, he said, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. This is brought very clear to us when the poor jailer in the Philippian jail, when uh, Paul and Silas had been beaten and, and placed in stocks and uh, the earthquake shook uh, the jailer awake. The jailer rushed into the, to the room where they were, into the jail room, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What was Paul's response? He said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. He didn't say, uh, You need to, from this time on, you need to obey the Ten Commandments. You need to keep the law of Moses. He did not. That's... Uh, that's legalism. Uh, wonderful, wonderful grace this is that through faith we make good the promises of God uh, for salvation. That's a tremendous consolation in Christ. A third consolation is that uh, once a person comes to Christ, Jesus offers him assurance of that salvation. He says, uh, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but is passed from death unto life. Does that comfort you? That um, Jesus says you don't have to wonder. You don't have to, uh, uh, to wait until you get to judgment to know if you're going to heaven or not. Jesus says uh, you may know that you have eternal life. What a consolation to these um, Philippians. But that's not all. Because Jesus offers this fourth consolation. He knows the trials that the Philippians are going through. And he doesn't leave them stranded. 
He doesn't leave them on the freeway uh, with no cell phone and no, no AAA, no help. But instead, he, he says, I am with you always. I am with you. Not only do I sympathize with the trials that you're going through, I feel the persecution. The, um, uh, he told uh, Paul on the road to Damascus, he said, um, who are you persecuting? You're persecuting me. Meaning that through his believers, the Lord Jesus feels that pain. He feels the stripes that uh, Paul and Silas endured at the hands of, um, uh, of the executioners. But it's not just that, but the Lord Jesus is with the Philippians through every step of the way. And this is a consolation, an encouragement, a comfort. Was there consolation in Christ for the Philippians? Yes, and enough for you and me. The second resource that Paul uh, offers the Philippians is the comfort of love. The consolation was big. That was, um, uh, that was rich. But Paul adds to that the comfort of love. And the word there for comfort is um, an even stronger term than consolation was. Uh, the definition of this word comfort in the original is uh, speaking close with a greater degree of tenderness than even that encouragement. Bill McDonald tells... Um, the story of a youngster who was in school back years and years ago, um, horribly deformed uh, from birth, and, uh, and so she was um, avoided by her classmates. And this teacher had, uh, had pity for her, had sympathy for her. And so uh, back in those days, there were, no, um, there were no electronics. You couldn't go to the doctor and have your hearing tested. So the student would stand at the other end of the room and the teacher would whisper to the student uh, to, to check for that student's hearing. And what the teacher said in her whisper to this little girl, she said, I wish you were my girl. I wish you were my girl. She had this comfort of, of love. She had this compassion, this sympathy. And the Lord Jesus whispers in the ear of every believer. He says, I am yours and you're mine this comfort of love. Well, how does the Lord do that? How does he show this tenderness, uh, this comfort of love? He does it through his ministers. There are three who are pointed out in this letter uh, to the Philippians, Paul being the first himself. Uh, Paul's was no passing infatuation. He wasn't um, um, delighted in, in the Philippians and then the next minute uh, forgot about them. But he says um, in uh, Philippians 1.8, he says, God is my witness, how greatly I long for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. I long for you all. I'm uh, a thousand miles away, but uh, you're on my thoughts. In fact, he, um, Paul, the committed shepherd, said, I have you in my heart. I have you in my heart. And then he told the Philippians basically that their spiritual health was going to be his joy, that if he could hear of their, their well-being, that would be his joy. Timothy. Because Paul was um, incarcerated and unable to go to Philippi, he would send Timothy 
I, Paul said to the Philippians, I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. There was um, a lack of um, real compassion, real care, but uh, here was a man, Timothy, who had that for the Philippian people. He was... Um, uh, he had this, uh, this tenderness for them. And then third, Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus as well longed for the Philippians. He's so in tune with, uh, with the Philippian heart that um, he was deathly ill, and his concern was that the Philippians would be distressed because they would hear of his, uh, his illness. And uh, Epaphroditus, we're going to read in, later in the letter, that he disregarded his own life to supply what the Philippians lacked in their service toward Paul. So here's a, here's a man with a real care, a real heart concern. These were the servants of God that God provided for the comfort of love for the saints. There have been, there are believers in my life who have communicated this same comfort of love. And um, I would never have known the depth or the richness of God's grace except through these special ministers, these, um, these chosen servants of God. And I praise the Lord for them. Do you know the tenderness of God's love through his ministers, through his servants. A third resource that Paul points out is the fellowship of the Spirit. Commentators interpret this as that communion that we can have in, uh, in an assembly with believers only because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enables that communion. And uh, with that, I hardly amen. I agree with, uh, with that. But I want to propose that there is yet another sense with which we have fellowship with the Spirit. It's not just of the Spirit, but it's with the Holy Spirit. It sounds incredible that the omnipotent God would join in partnership with his fallible frail creatures. It seems impossible. But we read in Romans 8.26, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know uh, what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession with us, makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. When I go to my knees, and I bow my head and I lift up my heart to heaven, I'm giving the Holy Spirit opportunity to, um, to pray and to work through me for his glory and for my benefit on behalf of those for whom I pray. It's a, a strange and wonderful partnership, a communion of, um, of the Holy Spirit. 
Paul wrote to, uh, to the Philippians in the previous chapter. He said, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. In prayer, we are in a very real way laborers together with God. And then Paul provides this um, uh, resource of affection and mercy, rather the Lord does, uh, affection being kindness and goodwill. Paul identified the source and therefore the quality of that affection as being the Lord Jesus. He said, God is my witness, how greatly I long for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the source. He is the, um, he's the, the one who gives that, uh, that special affection for his saints. And we can do no better than that. Paul had it. And then uh, mercy. Mercy is uh, pity. It's a compassion for the ills of others. With these resources that we have uh, listed, the consolation in Christ, the comfort of love, the fellowship of the Spirit, and uh, affection and mercy, these, uh, these believers now, Paul gives instruction for their unity in the church. We have this to lean on. We have that, those resources to rely on. Paul says, fulfill my joy. He had joy in the Philippians. He rejoiced in the, in the assembly. He thanked God on every uh, remembrance of them, always in every prayer of his, making request for them with all joy. The joy was there, but um, he anticipated a greater joy in the believer's growth and maturity. In, in, verse, in uh, chapter 4, he's going to call the, the uh, Philippians his joy. They are his joy. But he says, you are my joy, now fill my cup to overflowing. In, uh, in verse 2, fulfill my joy. How were the believers to fill up Paul's joy? First, instruction he gives by being like-minded. To be like-minded is to think the same thing. There was an undercurrent of strife in the church as shown in the conflict later between uh, Yodia and Syntyche. Was there room, was there not room for diversity in the Philippian assembly? Well, yes, there was, uh, not for strife and conflict, but for diversity. Actually, God prizes diversity, and he shows that by the members of his body being unique. Each of us uh, fills a special function. Not only so, but um, God gives different gifts to his believers, and so we, um, we are diverse God made us that way. So what is the thing that the apostle wanted the Philippians to think the same? He wasn't lobbying for consensus or common ground between conflicting parties, as noble as that is, as necessary as that is. Nor would he be content thinking the same about inconsequentials. He, he doesn't want us to be... Um, struggling to agree on things that don't matter. What color should we paint the chapel? 
Um, that's not Paul's concern. Uh, what's the menu for Mother's Day luncheon? Well, that's, that's important, but that's not what Paul's addressing. Rather, he's concerned about the major doctrines of the faith. Calvary Bible Chapel has a, um, a doctrinal statement, and uh, all those, all of us who are in fellowship here uh, are required to agree to that, um, that doctrinal statement. I, I urge you to, to read that. Um, we should think the same on those major doctrines, or we're not going to get very far in the work of the Lord. Just as important as these major doctrines was um, the church's mission. And um, Howard, I appreciate your uh, New Year's message, 2019 New Year's message, where you uh, challenged us to adopt the, the church's mission as uh, worshiping the Lord and making his name known to a needy uh, generation. That is our mission. We should be single-minded. We should be agreed on that. The key to being like-minded, I mean, we're talking about uh, so many different people in this meeting. The key to being like-minded is to have the mind of the Lord. Show us a video, Luke. In this video, uh, we're going to see an orchestra. I want you to pay attention to what's going on here. Um, what the young lady does right here. You orchestra musicians know what note that is. Is it A? Okay. So she played A, not because they didn't know the rest of the piece. What are they doing? Elizabeth said they're tuning. And so they have one, um, one guide. They have one, um, one standard, and that is A on a violin. The others tune their instruments to the same A. And this illustrates how we can be unified, how we can think the same thing in the assembly because we're all tuned to the same Lord Jesus. We're all thinking his thoughts about his church and the way that we should uh, reach out, the way should we, uh, we should conduct ourselves, um, the conduct of his church. So um, that seems to be obvious. Uh, we seem to, to agree to that, but um, how do we gain the Lord's thinking about his church? How do we get there? 
by his word, by steeping ourselves in his word, immersing ourselves, saturating our, our thinking with his word. That requires time and effort. Uh, it also requires application because it's uh, one thing to know the will of the Lord, it's another to do that. And so to gain the mind of the Lord, I need to know through his word what his mind is. I need to apply that. And then finally, I need to pray. The Lord changes us when we pray. James wrote, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man works much. I I read this recently in a Bible dictionary or commentary, and the working much, the availing much, is in the heart of the prayer. That's what he said. And uh, I thought, no, that can't be. Because uh, Elijah, when he prayed, he was changing the world. He, He prayed that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. But there was a larger work in process, and that was the Lord was changing the heart of Elijah. And as we come before the Lord, we cry out to him for the things that we need. Uh, He changes us. He changes our hearts. We need that to think the mind of the Lord Jesus. Paul's second instruction was to have the same love. Be like-minded, have the same love. The same love as whose? Well, he had already talked about the comfort of love that um, Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus had brought. They had experienced it. They had benefited from it. They grew in the Lord by it. Now, Paul says, love with the same love that we loved you. Be sacrificial. Be self-emptying. Be substantial in your love. For these, um, for these other believers. Be a, be a Paul or a Timothy or an Epaphroditus where you minister. Third, Paul instructs the believers, be of one accord. That word, um, that phrase one accord means literally to be fellow souled or fellow minded. Joined in soul in heart agreement, intent on one purpose. To be, one of, uh, to be of one accord is to be partners in assembly life. In Luke 5, uh, we read about uh, Simon and uh, James and John being partners in the fishing business. Uh, what kind of business would that have been if they'd um, fished uh, Sunday mornings from 10 until 1, and Wednesday evenings from uh, 7.30 until 8.30. I mean, what kind of a business would that be? Their partnership extended to from early morning until late at night. They were committed to each other. They were involved in that business. And so in that, we as uh, partners in assembly life should devote more than a couple hours a week to the welfare of, um, of our fellow believers. Being of one accord is a characteristic of the early church. Um, in the book of Acts, read through there and note the instances of, of that phrase. Um, it should have characterized the Philippian assembly and it should 
characterize the uh, assembly uh, uh, meeting at Calvary Bible Chapel. Paul instructs them to be of one mind. Paul appealed to the minds of these believers four times in the four and a half verses that we're looking at. Why is that? It's because the mind gives rise to action. Sow a thought and you reap an action. Sow an act and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a destiny. How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. How effective and efficient we are in the Lord's work when we are of one mind. So um, Paul has called out the resources that um, the Lord offers to his church for unity. He instructs them in unity. And third, he calls the Philippians to humility and to other-centeredness. In verse 3, he says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. What are the forces, Paul reveals, that weaken, if not divide and destroy, the local body of Christ? Well, one is selfish ambition. The King James Version reads, calls it strife. And it's really the desire to gain a following among the believers in the church. Ambition was rampant in the Corinthian church. Paul wrote the Corinthians, he said, you're still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? The leaders in Corinth were competing with others for the recognition and the appreciation of the saints. And the result of self-seeking is confusion. James wrote, where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing will be there. God opposes this selfish ambition. He resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Another of these forces counter to unity is conceit. The King James Version calls it uh, appropriately uh, vain glory. It's uh, um, an exact transla translation of that uh, original word. Vain glory means empty ambition. We have uh, to look only at the Lord Jesus' closest disciples to see an example of that. The Lord Jesus asked them on the road, um, he said, what was it you disputed about among yourselves? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. Vain, empty ambition had no place there as, um, as one of the Lord's disciples. Um, one of our managers asked for inputs for our performance evaluations at work. And he said, um, here is an opportunity for uh, your shameless self-promotion. Go ahead, write about yourself. Shamelessly promote yourself. There is a way to write resumes and work achievements without self-exaltation. 
How should we then live? Well, Paul tells us in lowliness of mind. Our example, the Lord Jesus. We will learn more about that in the, uh, in the weeks ahead. The Lord Jesus, humility. But for now, um, he, he gives us a picture of that. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We are to live in lowliness of mind. We're to esteem others better than ourselves. To esteem means to consider, to think, to judge, to value others above ourselves. Paul wrote the Romans, he said, be kindly affectioned to one another with brotherly love in honor giving preference to one another. As a a uh, young college graduate, I enrolled in a psychology program to find out why we behave as we do. In one course, the professor told the class, there is some one thing in each of us that makes us feel superior to others. There is that one thing in each of us that makes us feel superior to others. It was a simple statement of fact. It was amazingly true to human nature, but it's something that we have to get over if we're going to serve the Lord Jesus. There's no room for it, superiority in our attitudes. Slide, please. A box of donuts makes the round of the dinner table until only two are left. One for mom and one for three-year-old junior. Uh, those two donuts, one is plain, and the other is iced with lots of sprinkles. The three-year-old gets first pick. What's he gonna choose? Anybody? <laughs> that was pretty unanimous. The three-year-old's gonna choose the sprinkled donut because he's esteeming himself better than mom. It's incredible, but true. We expect that of a three-year-old. They have to be taught otherwise. A 33-year-old, well, we, we expect better things of, uh, of the, older, the older ones. Uh, next slide. We have an example in the Old Testament of um, esteeming others better than himself. God had promised Abraham the land of Canaan. And for um, reasons we won't get into, uh, Abraham brought Lot. And so there was conflict between uh, Abraham and Lot, between their, their shepherds, Lot being the nephew of Abraham. And so Abraham esteemed Lot better than himself. He said, Lot, I want you to choose to the left or to the right. I will choose to the right or to the left. We're going to split up, and uh, you, you take first choice. Abraham yielded his personal rights. He esteemed Lot better than himself, well knowing what Lot was going to choose, because Lot chose the best. As believers, we can do the same as Abraham did. 
We can value others better than ourselves because of the value that God has placed on us. We have a very large account in the bank of heaven. We can afford it. What application can we make? Well, the dinner table offers intense practicalities. We serve others first. We don't take the largest portion. We don't take the donut crusted with icing and sprinkles when there's a plain one there. We wait until all have firsts before asking to have the last remaining portion. In, uh, in the household, in the chapel, we take on extra chores to allow others to engage in a more spiritual ministry. Esteeming others is oftentimes just simply being considerate. It's thinking of others, making sacrifices where needed. Emerson wrote, good manners are made up of petty or small sacrifices. In verse 4, the apostle calls the Philippians to selflessness. He doesn't ask the believers to give away their homes. He simply says uh, to exercise the same carefulness toward others' homes as you do toward your own. And here's a test. Do we handle a borrowed item as carefully as uh, our own personal item? I borrow something from a neighbor. Am I treating it as carefully as I do my own? Lot failed the test. He looked not out for the interests of others, but for his own. We read in Genesis 13, Lot lifted his eyes and saw the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go toward Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself. Lot chose for himself. What were Lot's options when Abraham offered his choice of the land. Could have uh, thrown it back to Abraham. Look, uncle, the Lord has promised this to you. You choose. It's yours. Uh, you're, you're my uncle. You're my respected relative. You choose. Or Lot could have chosen the lesser of the two lands. One was obviously better. Uh, uncle, I'm choosing this, this land. Application. The midweek prayer meeting, participating in assembly prayer is an excellent way to esteem others better than ourselves. We pray for you. I mean, uh, at the prayer meeting, we're, we're uh, praying for you. Uh, in the prayer circle, we divide up into, um, into small groups, and there are um, ideally are three or four of us in the group. We've only got 20 minutes to pray. Well, let's divide 20 by 4. That's five minutes each, so I should be careful not to, um, not to extend my prayer time for more than five minutes to give the others time to pray. Conversation. <clears throat> I, I should not dominate or hijack the conversation, but allow equal time to other participants. I have an imaginary stopwatch. It's called a smartphone. And actually, there is an app for a stopwatch on here. But if I start in a conversation and I go for more than 30 seconds or a minute, if I'm really being detailed about something, pull out your, pull out your cell phone. And uh, uh, it's a stopwatch. Hey, look, you're dominating this conversation. Give me time to, to speak. All right? That's esteeming others 
um, that's looking after your things as well as mine. Offering rides to others, to meetings and events of the assembly, we do that. And that's a tremendous joy to the driver to multiply his or her effectiveness. Um, I'm not the only one attending. Um, I'm bringing friends. I'm bringing brothers and sisters with me. In conclusion, simple exhortation, as promised, let this mind be in you. Or as um, another translates it, this mind be constantly having in you. I've asked uh, David to close with um, uh, hymn number 228 in our book. If you find that the words of the hymn do not fit your experience, I ask you to sing anyway. Uh, Join me in singing it as a hymn of aspiration. What's that mean? A goal that we strive for. So uh, let's pray and then David come up and, and let's sing. Lord, may we fulfill your joy today by being like-minded, by having the same love as uh, we've been loved with, and by being of one accord, of one mind. You've made full provision for unity here among the believers at Calvary Bible Chapel. Remind us, please, as we go through our week to esteem others better than ourselves, to consider the things of others as carefully as we do our own. Uh, Thank you, Lord, for the tremendous uh, consolation that we have in you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.